welcome to Faith in Politics. The Joint Public Issues Teams podcast. I'm Rodney. And I'm Meg. Thanks so much for joining us this month, guys. We're really excited for what we've got planned. So what have we got uh, in today's episode, Rodney? This month, we've got an amazing interview with Ben Lindsay. Ben speaks to us about racism, why we need to talk about race, especially in white majority churches. And he speaks especially about lamenting, which we get to reflect on. Yeah, brilliant. And so just before we jump into Ben's section and then our reflection afterwards, we have a really quick feature from the brilliant Lucy. Lucy's one of the other interns with us at JPIT. Tell us a little bit about the TPNW. Yeah, so the TPNW stands for the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Uh, It's a treaty that was adopted by the UN in 2017. And within the last month, it's received its 50th ratification. So it started the process of passing into legal force, which will happen sometime in January. It means that nuclear weapons are now banned under international law, which means that everyone who signed or ratified it is prohibited from any activity involving nuclear weapons, which includes possessing them or um, having them stationed on your territory, developing them, um, financing them, any kind of nuclear weapons related activity is banned under this treaty. Unfortunately, none of the nuclear states have actually signed or ratified this treaty. There are nine nuclear states in the world at the moment, um, and none of those have signed it, which means that perhaps the effects of the treaty won't be as great as we would hope that they would be. Um, What we're hoping is that the treaty will mean that the international discourse on nuclear weapons is shifted so that it will mean that there's a sort of taboo against nuclear weapons in the same way that there is for biological or chemical weapons. Um, And so this is going to start the the process of moving the nuclear states in the direction of uh, disarming. And where does the UK stand um, in terms of ratifying this? So the UK has not ratified or signed this treaty, which is a real disappointment. Um, It didn't even it, we, unfortunately, didn't even attend the um, negotiations in 2017. Uh, the UK government has shown no interest in disarming, uh, despite having signed a treaty in 1970, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, that said that they would take active steps towards reducing and eventually disarming their nuclear arsenal. So um, it's a shame that the UK hasn't signed it, and I recommend that everyone who listens to this podcast writes to their MP and asks them why the UK government hasn't signed this treaty. For our listeners that may be interested, what can they do about it? So what they can do about it is, obviously I mentioned writing to your MP, but a really good thing that you can do is write to your bank or pension provider and ask them what, how the treaty is going to change their investment policy on nuclear weapons. Um, most banks and pension providers have a controversial weapons policy, which means that they don't invest in weapons or weapon production, uh, which are involved in what are known as controversial weapons, which includes um, biological, chemical weapons, cluster munitions, other things that are banned in international law, essentially. So what we're hoping is that this treaty will mean that nuclear weapons are put into the controversial weapons category and financing them will become a lot harder in this country. Brilliant. Is there somewhere people could go to find some more information on this or find out more about emailing their banks? Why, yes, there is, Meg. There's a website called um, moneyoutofnukes.wordpress.com. So if you want to get involved and have a look at a big report that's been done by uh, an interfaith group called the uh, UK Nuclear Weapons Financing Research Group, you can look on there and see how your bank or pension provider did and um, then take action by writing them a letter uh, using the template that's on that website. So it's really easy. Thanks for joining us, Ben.
Ben is the founder of Power to Fight, a charity aimed at empowering communities to end youth violence and knife crime. He is also the author of the book, We Need to Talk About Race, Understanding the Black Experience in White Majority Churches, described by the Archbishop of Canterbury as a must-read book for the UK church. Thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. So the first question we really wanted to ask, what would you say the greatest impact of your faith on your politics was? And how do you see that work in your life? That's a great question. Um, I suppose for me, when you look at the Christian faith and the work of Jesus, you see somebody who was a disruptor of the status quo and was somebody who really knew how to speak truth to power while also bringing in those on the edge of society into the centre to build something great, to build a movement, to, to build the Christian faith. So if you look at um, the people who were his disciples and the people who were his followers and the people who became apostles, bringing people on the edge in to effectively create system change and deep-rooted change is something which massively appeals to me. So the, the love of people, uh, the, the fact that God has no favourites and shows no partiality is, is something which is deep in me um, through my faith. But I'm also fascinated by the idea of partnerships and networks and bringing people together who wouldn't normally um, maybe work together. And I think when you look at the disciples and you look at the Christian faith, um, I think church is probably the only place where you could be sitting next to people who you wouldn't necessarily choose to. Um, and I think that's the beauty of the faith. But I think it also for me, when I think about the things I'm involved in, um, whether it's running a charity for around youth violence or even engaging with race issues, both of those things are going to require a societal response and not just one part of society's kind of reaction to this. It's going to require us all coming together, even um, with our differences. So yeah, that, 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 those are some of the things which appealed to me and probably have fed into my, my political beliefs. So Ben, your work at the Power of the Fight is around youth violence and I've seen you working in a lot of secular capacities, such as with the Mayor of London's Violence Reduction Unit Reference Group and on the Cross Party Youth Violence Commission. How does your faith influence your approach to youth violence and the way that you work in these secular political environments? Well, first thing I'll say is that those environments you mentioned, whether it's sitting on the Violence Reduction Unit Reference Group with the Mayor of London or even the Cross uh, Cross like Youth Violence Commission, um, which was led by uh, Vicky Foxcroft. Um, I think both of those environments are really welcoming and open to people of different faiths. Um, and that is something which I'm thankful for. I don't know if it was always like that, um, but it really feels like there is a, an appreciation that faith groups, um, can bring something to the table which maybe other community groups can't. And I always say this, particularly with the church, in relation to youth violence, there's three things that we have which are no longer as readily available. Uh, the first thing would be volunteers. 
you know we we've got the biggest volunteer force in the in the country um and that will play out in or should play out in supporting those who are in the most need the second thing we've got which at the moment um we can't even use is buildings um and i think that is that's massive as well i think the fact that they're the physical spaces which are in the heart of the community um is really really unique and then the third thing which i honestly believe makes faith groups and, and churches in particular almost um i was almost about to say covid proof i don't think i mean that i, I think I would say austerity proof um, is the money and the financial and the resources that we we have. And there is just the consistent level of giving and compassion, uh, which faith groups and, and churches specifically from my context, I've seen over the last year and pretty much all my life. And that is incredible. Um, but also what I like about unrestricted money such as which trade foods can bring to the table is how the speed that you can get things done and for me i think those things also appeal to to some of those bodies where you were talking about i think we are in the heart of the community we have the ear of the community we are unsung heroes uh, we we have the we we are the people who are burying people we are the people who are celebrating with people uh, we are the the demographics who are the ear to people in the, in their hardest times. There's moments when we are the peacemakers. I think that appeals. You know what I mean? And it's kind of like, oh, we're, and we're not funding you, <laughs> and you're and you're in a position to, to 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 do so much. And I think the best version of of what we do means that we have the ear to the community, and the community trusts us. And I think that does appeal to politicians, um, not in a way in which they use us but in a way which just means that we can be part of the solution to any community issues. Moving on to your book, we need to talk about race. What was the inspiration behind it? Wow. I mean, I, I would say there's a few things. So um, I was never planning to write a book. That was not my, um, you know, that wasn't my plan. At the time, I was leading a church in South East London and I just decided to launch a charity off the back of um, a couple of murders in, in South London. My experience is that I've worked in the field of youth violence and youth sector for 20 years. And I suppose the two murders which happened in 2016 in New Cross, um, something just went off in me where I was like, you know what, I think we need to approach youth violence in a more um, systems approach. Like how do we get to the systemic issues? um how do we engage with that type of stuff um so that was my focus and that was it i was like i've got a church to run and i've got this charity i'm trying to set up god i think you've given me enough here i don't know if i could do any more um and probably too much information but i've said it before so i'll say it again i was in the shower and um and <laughs> at that point there was just an incredible moment where i suddenly yeah, this brainwave came to write a book very specifically about the black experience in with with racism in a church context i'd read rene edo lodge's why i'm no longer talking to white people about race um i'd given that book out to quite a few of my my church leaders and 
um, while everybody, rightfully so, was very positive about the book, a couple of people came back to me and was just like, oh, I just wonder what God has to say about this stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, no, that's a, that's a really good point. So, you know, I was just thinking about that. But what motivated it, I think, was ongoing conversations in my church of Black people experiencing exclusion, um, being on the, on the outside, being othered. 40 plus years of me being in, 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 in different churches. So started off in a Baptist church, which my mum used to take me to, then got saved in, in, in a more evangelical church, um, and then ended up leading a church. And all these different situations were in white majority movements. And therefore, there was a few things I picked up along the way where I'm just like, why does that happen? And the sad thing is, the things I was picking up I was seeing in my work context, I was seeing in the media, I was seeing in music, I was seeing in, in politics, basically this structural racism, um, this systemic racism, which was which was, was there, but also the overt stuff as well, um, the microaggressions and all that type of stuff. And I was like, but this shouldn't be happening in the church. Because as I said earlier, and God shows no partiality and and, you know, we look at Revelation 7-5 and you look at all their kind of every tribe, every tongue. And it's like, OK, what are we saying about that? Are we saying those verses are just some unobtainable goal, dream, ideal, which we only get to when we get to heaven, when we're all singing Kumbaya around the log fire? Um, or is that something we should be trying to fight for, even if it doesn't look perfect, even if it's flawed? Is this something we should be fighting for here now on Earth? And I think it's the latter. But for that to happen, very simply, we're going to have to do something which we're not very good at in this country and talk about racism and have a real honest conversation about racism. So that's why I called the book, We Need to Talk About Race. And it's some of my experiences and um, my friends' experiences. And I tried to get a wide mix of, of people. And that's what you know, it came, came down to, really. With that being said, where would you say the church is in regards to the conversation about race? Would you say the church has taken its time to get to this discussion and been hesitant? And if so, why has that been the case? Um, I think the church is behind most things, most conversations, if I'm honest. <laughs> and then we could all think of multiple things which seem to be really in the public eye. And then the church seems to jump on it years later and you're like, what is that about? So I don't think it's unique to just race or racism. But... Um, I think in the case of race, it's an interesting one because when you look at racism and you go back centuries and you start looking at the transatlantic slave trade, the church was right at the centre of it. We like to talk about Wilberforce, don't we? Um, that's the great white saviour of, of black people. And there is an element of that which is true. Like, you know, you don't, um, I'm not denouncing the work of Wilberforce in any shape or form. But um, we also tend to ignore the complicity of the church to get us in this place in the first place. And I think because of that, uh, I sometimes describe it as like stage four cancer, where it was kind of the type of thing that was like a, uh, a, the primary cancer happened <laughs> and then it just basically ended up spreading across the body. Now, whether that's the body of Christ, the church or society, I think you could take the metaphor bigger um, and therefore we got a lot of work to do and I think the, the church has been slow I think when George Floyd was murdered so you know I put out a book in 2018 and I'm like everybody should need to 
this is the moment everyone's going to understand this and we're going to, you know, we're going to have the conversation. And the truth is, a few people did get on it and it was like, okay, cool. But then it wasn't really until George Floyd, brutal, untimely, a horrific murder happened that something went off for everybody, regardless of faith. But the church, man, it was like an awakening. There was like a, oh, you know, this is, it's been a massive blind spot. And therefore, I'm I'm just really happy that a book, which was initiated, in my opinion, by God, um, has been able to be a really helpful resource. But the beautiful thing is that when, you, when God speaks, I've seen enough churches and people and Christians who've really kind of had their heart broken. Effectively, what we're talking about is what breaks God's heart and is it breaking your heart? And I believe that when it comes to racism, it breaks God's heart. You know, when it comes to churches and, and Christians not fighting, um, like, you know, Isaiah 116 talks about um, fighting for justice and correcting oppression. The question we got to ask ourselves is, what does that look like in our context? Currently, the context is, you know, black lives do not seem to matter. And we could have been talking about that for years. But I think there's something very different about the conversation we're having now where everybody, you can't escape it. And I think the church really should be at the forefront. So what do you think makes this moment so different to other previous moments? Why is there so much momentum this summer and going into to this winter? I mean, there's kind of like a mystery. It's not the first time that black people have been killed horrifically in 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 a police context. Um, I think there's some practical things, like we were in the middle of lockdown, a lot of people didn't have much to do, and therefore that was that something that horrific, maybe if it was another time, you could just bypass it. But because it was in the middle of lockdown and we were all at home and we were all looking at the news, that is just like, you can't ignore that. So I think it's a practical thing. Um, I would say there's a spiritual dynamic as well, though. I believe that this is like a Kairos moment, you know, Kairos being monumentous, very specific, special moment. So in 1999, um, off the back of the 1993 murder of Stephen Lawrence, um, the McPherson report came out and basically said the police was institutionally racist um, and put a load of measures in place. And there's a whole argument, another conversation about whether 27 years on, whether these things have you know, changed anything. But... Um, I honestly believe this was the moment where the church had to acknowledge that there was something very deep and nasty, which was at, at the root of the UK church. And the Archbishop of Canterbury himself has come out and said that the church, the Church of England at least, um, is institutionally racist. He said that before George Floyd was murdered. So I think from a, a Christian perspective, God is speaking. And it's uncomfortable. And I think there's some moments where people are going to have to have some real conversations about not just what they ch their church stands for, but almost like an auditing of, of everyone's hearts, um, a, a real repentance. And I think one of the things we're not great at doing in this nation, um, or Christians are not great at doing, uh, is lamenting. So I think there has to be a space for us to lament. 
as black people and be like, and black and brown communities and say, look, we've been going, this is not new. George Floyd happened a few months ago, but this is my life. This is my experience. But I think it's, to answer your question, I think it's a spiritual dynamic. I think God's timing, God is sovereign. So it's like, okay, this is the moment. Um, and I think it's all interconnected. I think it's connected to COVID. When you look at statistics and you see that black people are four to one more likely to, 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 to get COVID. When you look at in that time, the stop and search rates went up, went through the roof and like thousands, like 20,000 more people, black people were stopped and searched by the police than a previous time outside of lockdown. And 80% of those stops and searches were no further action. You know, it's like, what more evidence you need to know that there's something structurally wrong in this country when it comes to black, like we only make up 7% of the country or 3% of the country. It's like, it's not even, so how comes we're like top of the Champions League of all the bad things, three to one likely to be excluded from a school if you're black Caribbean, nine to one if you're like to be stopped and searched, four to one to be in the criminal justice system. You know what I mean? It's like, there's a disproportionality which we need to talk about. And I think fortunately, if there's any good thing, if there's any good thing which has come out of George Floyd's horrific murder, is that the conversation is now open. In regards to the role of the church in dealing with racial justice, is this the first step in the church approaching this issue? Like something that requires the church to look inwardly in terms of their leadership? Yeah, I agree. I mean, as you might, you won't be surprised to hear, off the back of George Floyd's murder, I've had to do quite a lot of diversity and inclusion training or quality training with churches. And when I do that, I, I take churches and other organisations, secular organisations, through what I call a triple A analysis. And the triple A analysis is, first and foremost, we need to audit ourselves. We need to audit our hearts and we need to audit our organisations. And like you said, we need to have a, an, a, an acknowledgement and a conversation about where we actually stand around racial injustice. And, in, and that is completely biblical, because when you look at Acts 10 and Acts 11, God audited the heart of Peter and his prejudices against Cornelius the Gentile. And the response from that actually meant that once the Christian faith was shared with the Gentiles, it exploded outside of the Jewish nation, the Jewish um, people. And, you know, you and, you and I would not be Christians today if, if that didn't happen. So there is a, something about at the root of what we're having this conversation about is the, is the gospel. So we need to order ourselves to even check that we are doing this in the correct way. Um, and we can get into a whole conversation about, in my opinion, we need more equipping and training around what I would call urban apologetics. So, you know, seminaries and theological colleges, um, just studying white dead men is not going to help us move forward. We've got to widen it um, and we've got to engage with the community around us. But that's the first day. The second day is what I'd call awareness. So we need to really get into the, the river of the black experience, as James Coney would say, and, and allow those spaces where black and brown communities can be really honest about their experiences without fear of not getting a promotion, losing your job, being accused of having a chip on your shoulder, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the third A is, is act. Okay, we've now had those conversations about audit and awareness, 
like what do we do? Well, I think action is very much like we need to get on our knees and repent, definitely. Um, but we also need sustainable and measurable targets for short, long term, long, short, medium, and long term um, solutions. And if we don't have those, this is just pie in the sky conversation, and it's all very nice, and then we move forward. But we've got to have that stuff. So I think churches and any organizations engaging with those with this issue needs to follow that triple a analysis and i think that would be a good start how do you think the church should engage with political discussions regarding racial injustice we've talked about the church looking inwards but do you think the institutional character of the church of england in the uk is a barrier in these discussions or does it place it at an advantage as it's got you know representatives in such high places i don't think it's a barrier i think it's an amazing opportunity because in theory you've got the perfect combination and a conduit between the community and the people on the ground and the actual decision makers and policy makers in, in the highest places in the land. Um, Power to Fire operate in a similar way. At the same, we, we, we support families and young people who have been impacted by youth violence. We've got therapeutic services, we deliver training. So we're right on the ground. But at the same time, as you've said before, I sit with mayors of London and other MPs and therefore we look at ourselves and position ourselves as a conduit between what I would call the air engagement, policy, strategy, decision makers, and, and the ground. And I think churches and, and clergy in an ideal world can operate in the same way and should operate in the same way. I think there is a danger that we don't fall into thinking that the church has the only answer and, and we don't try and control the, the, the conversation. Um, I think being part of the solution is, is is really important, but definitely I think I think it shouldn't be. I, th- I actually think the Church of England have got more power than anybody realizes. Um, a quick Google search will tell you how much money the Church of England are sitting on. <laughs> it is billions, and while I'm not money orientated, I do believe that money can give you options, <laughs> and therefore have that is then distributed and support supporting the people, how it gets to the people who needs needs it the most, I think is is, is a conversation worth having. And I know it's not that straightforward. I've spoken to people on a very high level about this very thing. And I know that it's caught up in multiple things. I think if there is a criticism of the Church of England <laughs> or churches, is that the red tape sometimes to get anything done can frustrate because I do think actually we coming from someone who's a who's a CEO of a charity you know the grant funding application process can be quite long whereas when I was leading a church it was a simple case of let's take an offering and that money can go here and that kind of decision can be done within a couple of days and the people who need it the most gets it so I think if we operate like that it could be very powerful. Ben, thank you for joining us. It was an amazing and insightful conversation. We really appreciate it. No, thank you for having me. It's really, really lovely to be able to talk freely about um, things that really matter to me. So thank you for having me. You guys are great. So listening to Ben there was so insightful and really powerful. And I think something that you and I noticed and really kept in our hearts was his reference to when looking at the church's role in addressing racial justice and racism about us lamenting 
Well, yeah, I think like you were saying, Rodney, that was an idea that both spoke to us. And also I think is something that's on a lot of people's minds at the moment, as we're going through this period of coronavirus, where you're almost like constantly having to process and constantly having to deal with more than we usually would um, and deal with grief and deal with disappointment all the time. Lamenting, yeah, is something that is really present. Um, and so, yeah, I did a bit of research about what lamenting is. That's the only reason I know. I didn't, I mean, I knew, like you said, I, I was something I was aware of before, but was probably something that I discounted a little maybe. Um, and so when I was having a look at what it means to lament, the thing that I found that I thought was really interesting is, and we love a bit of roots of words, don't we? Um, the word to lament comes from in Greek, I think it's pronounced thereneho, but I could be wrong. Thereneho, not sure. You can tell me anyone that's a Greek scholar, um, but literally it means to wail. Um, and it comes from the root word to cry out. And that was something I think that both of us thought was really interesting was this idea that obviously it's in response to pain um, and injustice, but it's a really vocal thing. It's an audible thing. It's not a kind of quiet internal process, but it's, a, it, it's crying out at injustice and at pain. Um, and there was a quote by N.T. Wright, um, the um, Bible scholar and theologian um, about what it means to them. And he's talking about coronavirus, but I think it's as applicable to this issue of racial justice, which is, um, it is no part of the Christian vocation then to be able to explain what's happening and why. In fact, it's part of the Christian vocation not to be able to explain and to lament instead. As the spirit laments within us, so we become, even in our self-isolation, small shrines where the presence and healing love of God can dwell. Um, so I think that's a really beautiful quote, but also speaks to something of lament as a response to pain and injustice and to us not understanding and us not having to have answers or being able to explain away like why racism is so enshrined in the church, why it's yeah, so institutionalized, but just crying out to God and like making space for him him to come into that situation. With lamenting, and it's really interesting. And I think it's a process in terms of learning how to lament. And I think it, it's an experience that requires people to move beyond a level of denial and guilt about whatever it is. And I find lamenting so powerful. When you listen to Ben talk about and call for lamenting and repentance, it's incredibly helpful in the church responding to racial incidents. For many within the church who've experienced unfair treatment or pain because of their ethnicity, when you come to the church, the church is that forum for which you can have that corporate lament. And that corporate lament can be the language you use to demonstrate our commitment to Romans 12:15, that calls us to rejoice with those that rejoice and weep with those that weep. And I find that sometimes the issue of racism is so complex and the pain is so deep and strong and raw that the church in the past erred on the side of silence because it didn't know what to say. And we even do it outside of the church as probably individuals. When we see um, racial injustice taking place, we err on the side of silence because we don't know what to say, but we're inadvertently sending the wrong message. And I find lamenting a fantastic starting point for which we can get to grips with racism within the church. And I think you would agree that we're not 
aiming to be misunderstood or naive to think that it's the single solution because it's not. There's so many ways in which we can get to that point of addressing the real issues. And I think that idea that you've touched on of, of corporate lament and of it being something that we do um, with others as a group is really powerful. There was an article that I read while I was researching about this um, by Dr. Glenn, I think it's Pacquiam. Um, and he made a few different points about, about what it means to lament, um, but talked about the importance of lament as participate. He spoke about the importance of lament as participation in someone else's pain um, and a show of solidarity. Um, and I think that's what you're touching on. It was probably worth framing at the beginning, but you know, I'm white, I have not experienced firsthand racial injustice in the church or anywhere. Whereas for you, Rodney, you know, as a BAME person, that might be something that you have experienced more presently. And yeah, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12, 24 to 26, it says, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it. There may be no division in the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. And I think this idea of lamenting in solidarity is a really powerful thing. Um, like you said, of not being in denial and also not responding to not knowing how to, what to say by just being silent. I think Ben touched on it, like especially as British people, we're pretty rubbish at having difficult conversations and often it is easier um, to say nothing. Um, but this thing of, of crying out together, of saying to people, you know, even though I've not felt this, even though I've not been the victim of this, I'm not going to say nothing, but I'm going to lament with you. I'm going to grieve with you. I'm going to participate in your pain because we are different parts of the same body. We, we suffer together and we rejoice together um, is a really powerful process. And in the same article, it actually talked about how sometimes when you read psalms a lot of them are quite unrelatable people are feeling really extreme feelings in the psalms and sometimes it's just not where we're at but i think when you look at it more through that perspective of participating in other people's pain and you don't center yourself and this is something you know for white people generally when we take the light off what do i feel how do i fit into this and turn it into a we're part of the church we're part of the body of christ other people are feeling this and so i should lament too i don't just lament for my own pain but I participate in solidarity with, with the, the grief and the pain of my brothers and sisters, that's when we can actually start to have these conversations. I think that touches on the point also of community. That's essentially community. It's that feeling of, I'm my brother's keeper. And, you know, it's really just, community isn't really just a word or a saying. It's really a reality that God calls us to live out. When the church wants to look at how it can deal with this issue, I think, the church also can go down other ways of it. So maybe truth telling and seeking the spirit. I think um, there needs to be a commitment to hold some uncomfortable conversations, to get those people in to speak about the truth because the truth is your side, my side. And within that, the truth will come. And we can be a church that obviously holds seminars about racism where we allow people to express their experiences. I think someone like Ben, he's had the chance and the opportunity to visit many churches to speak about his book, but also racism in white majority churches. And those are steps of progress in, towards the church dealing with this issue. And I think seeking the spirit is important because 
you know, there, there are many issues we deal in with this world, where, from poverty to peace, social justice, whatever it is. And we always ask ourselves what God is saying on this issue. That's how Ben um, got to write the book. He was asking what God's saying on this issue. And we have to seek the spirit to know where we should turn, what we should do, how we should approach the conversation of race. And these are the things that the Holy Spirit can impart to us through spiritual wisdom. I completely agree. And I think at the beginning, you touched on the fact that um, Psalms is mostly lament. And Psalms is funny, the book of the Bible, because it, the word itself means praises. Um, and that kind of speaks to what you're saying in this process of lamenting and of looking forward and crying out. We do it whilst praising God for who he is, for his character, trusting in, in him that he will lead us and that he will guide us by his Holy Spirit. And so you can't do one without the other whilst we're crying out and we're coming together and having conversations. We're also appealing to God, trusting that he is a God that loves justice and that wants to you know, loose chains of oppression um, and lift people's burdens. And that is how we can recenter ourselves to push forward with those difficult conversations, I think. Rodney, do you want to wrap us up by, by reading a prayer? Let us pray. Loving God, we thank you and adore you. We ask, Lord, that you let us not rush to the language of healing before understanding the fullness of the injury and the depth of the wound. Let us not rush to offer a bandage when gaping wounds require surgery and complete reconstruction. Let us not offer false equivalences, thereby diminishing particular pain. Let us not speak of reconciliation without speaking of restoration. Let us not value a false peace over a righteous justice. Let us not be afraid to sit with the ugliness, the messiness and the pain that is life in community together. Let us be humble and listen to the pain, the rage and the grief pouring out from the lips of our neighbors and friends. God, in your mercy, we ask that you show us our own complicity in injustice and that you convict us in our indifference Forgive us when we have remained silent and equipped us with the zeal for righteousness. Never let us grow accustomed or acclimatized to unrighteousness, but may we continue to fight for peace, justice, and equality. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. Follow us on Twitter at FIP underscore podcast and Instagram, Faith in Politics.